Welcome to The V-Hive, a platform focused on women's intimate health. With weekly episodes from the field's top practitioners, we discuss all of the things you've always thought about but never wanted to talk about. On this podcast, we are making the highest quality information on the most beloved part of your body accessible, understandable, and implementable. I'm your host, Hannah Matluck, and I started this platform as a result of my own experience with chronic pelvic pain. Throughout the years I spent healing my body, I became overwhelmingly interested and passionate about these topics and have made it my mission to create awareness and education on the complexities of the female body. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to quickly share with you guys that if you are interested in receiving exclusive monthly bonus content, you can become a member of The V-Hive by going to www.thevhive.com backslash memberships. Not only will you unlock access to healthy recipes, ask me anything episodes, and so much more, but you will also be helping to support this podcast. So check out our membership options at www.thevhive.com backslash memberships. Today, I'm here with Maria Taher, the U.S. Executive Director and co-founder of SIO, an internationally recognized award-winning organization to empower Asian communities to end female genital cutting, also known as FGC. Mariah has worked in the anti-gender violence field for over a decade, including working on the issue of domestic violence within a number of organizations. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. So this is an important topic, an extremely important topic, and one that I've never discussed on the podcast. So when I was connected with you, I was just excited to have you come on the podcast and talk about something that really needs to be talked about and something that we can work on to help create awareness on this platform and hopefully many others. Um, So just tell us your story and how you got involved in this space. Yeah, sure. Thank you again for allowing me to come onto this platform and really talk to you about this issue of female genital cutting or FGC, as I might call it, um, for short. And just, just so you know, and others who might be listening might be familiar with term other terms for this practice, which is FGM, female genital mutilation. Um, and then there's a, a few other terms that are specific to certain communities. But the reason or how I got involved with female genital cutting was some was that it was actually something that I grew up with. It was something that I knew happened to women and girls because it happened in the community that I grew up in in the U.S. and it was something that was very normal for me you know something that I actually have shared publicly that it happened to me when I was seven but at the time I really didn't know anything about it and I just thought it was very normal for all the girls to get this done and it wasn't really until high school when another friend of mine talked about it and was really angry because she learned that it was something called female genital mutilation. That's when I started to recognize what it was and start to question it. And then later on, it was something that always stuck with me. And when I was doing more research and learning about it, I realized that everything that I, I learned about was that it happened within Africa or amongst African diaspora communities. And my background is I was born in the U.S., but my, my parents are from India originally. 
And I never, um, in all my research, was able to find anything about it happening to either U.S.-born kids or to kids outside of the African context, too. And so it was just something that I think out of my own curiosity, also, I was, I was just, how could it be something that's considered a human rights violation when it was something that happened to me? And trying to reconcile that with this loving family that I came from as well was just very challenging for me to do. And it stuck with me. And then later on, when I went to, to graduate school for social work, I had an opportunity well, really at that time, I started recognizing that I had a passion for working in gender-based violence work, and really that involved, like you mentioned, domestic violence and sexual assault, but also female genital cutting, or FGC. And so for my thesis, I decided that since I couldn't find research out there about this specific community and, it, and FGC happening in this specific community, that I would create the research mm -hmm. and so I did this exploratory study where I was able to speak with women who I knew in the U.S. to understand why it continued and really at the time coming from a social work perspective I realized that some frontline professionals whether they're child protective service um, professionals or health professionals or social workers or you know uh, legal professionals they might come in contact with women who've undergone this and it felt important to build that knowledge base so they would know how to engage in dialogue around this issue too and provide support if it is needed and so and in a way that that it i needed to understand also why this continued and mm -hmm. from there um Really, as I was learning more, I decided that I wanted to talk about this. And, and at the time, there were a few people that knew about the research I was doing. And so I was invited to give a couple of presentations. And then I wrote about it for the Global Fund for Women. And I wrote about my story, but also just about the stories that I heard from other women. And I really wanted to highlight how complicated this was in terms of it being a form of gender-based violence because it's, it's unique in a lot of ways where it's something oftentimes you hear women are continuing on to women um, in various communities. And there are a lot of other complexities, which I'm happy to talk about later. But but I really wanted to, to paint that it wasn't it's it's more complicated than recognized when if you if you have heard about it and when you initially hear about it. And then from there, I connected with the other women who came to be the co-founders of SEO because they read one of the pieces that I wrote and that was back in 2015 and all of us recognized that we needed to come together to highlight FGC in, this, in a global platform and specifically highlighting it that it happens in Asian communities since our background was in Asian communities but also that it happens much more globally than, than recognized. Um, it's not just something that's considered, there's a lot of attention, a lot of research that happens within Africa and, and I think that's that's good, but also recognizing that it's more global than it is. And, and our our work is really about breaking that silence and, mm -hmm. you know, ensuring that we recognize this as a global issue. Right. So can we talk about the myth that this only happens within African communities? Why is that? Because as you've just said, it's quite prevalent in the United States as well and many other countries. Um, and so that's a huge misunderstanding, I think, amongst the world. Why, why is that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it's interesting. I feel like when we talk about breaking silence, 
it's breaking silence, not just amongst communities where it happens and not just breaking silence from survivors, but for so long, even, you know, at the top most international or intergovernmental organizations, there was not this recognition that FGC was as global as it is. And one of the things that I think is a huge shift in coming to recognize that um, at the UN, UNICEF, UNFPA, UNICEF joint programs, um, they work on this issue. And so that's something that they've recognized in the last few years that this is global. But another thing related to that and the UN is that there are these markers called the Sustainable Development Goals. And prior to the Sustainable Development Goals, there were the Millennial Development Goals. And the these goals are standards that countries abide to around the world that sign on to the um, UN Declaration and everything um, around how to achieve equity in a various different ways. And currently in the Sustainable Development Goals, um, it's often referred to as SDG number five. That goal is related specifically to harmful practices, including child marriage and including female genital cutting or mutilation. And I bring that up because the former version, the Millennial Development Goals, did also have something around tracking this and seeing the progress towards ending this form of gender-based violence, but it only reported it in, I think at the time it was maybe 29 countries around the world, and that was only within Africa and um, mostly within the sub-Saharan Africa region and Middle East. And that means for a long time all the data that was collected this you know high level data was only in those countries Mm -hmm. and they were only responsible for um tracking information in that country which meant that anywhere else that was happening in the world it wasn't tracked and unfortunately as a result of that those voices survivor voices community voices were um just not heard those stories weren't heard but with this the sustainable development goals there was a big call for when they were developing this new criteria that we have what we call an indicator that we are actually tracking this in every country in the world. So every country that is signed on to this must must be working with their governments to track this information. That was a huge shift from previously where it was just only this few countries to now every country that is signing on is responsible for signing um, for tracking this information. And that just... Mm-hmm. Again, only happened in the last 10 years. And um, actually, the, the standard development goals are only five years old now. But it was something that helped other organizations and I think international entities and countries and just advocates and survivors and community members really start to understand this is a global issue. And within that, we started having stories coming out from uh, different organizations and survivors and community members as well. So when we talk about silence, it's not just from within the community, but that was a huge factor, I think, in terms of why this misconception was always led that it was only within Africa. And another piece of that, there's many reasons, but another piece of that I think is media representation. Um, and when this issue was mentioned, oftentimes what you hear about with female genital cutting, so for, for those who don't know what female genital cutting is, uh, it is the um, it involves it comprises all procedures that involve partial or total removal of the external female genitalia for non-medical reasons, mm-hmm. and there is a range in terms of the severity of female genital cutting from like type one to type four, and in general, type one is the least severe form, 
and it could involve anything from just like an, um, a piece of clitoral hood to part of the clitoris being removed to type three, which is the most severe where all of the external genitalia might be removed. And um, it could be what's known as infibulation could happen where everything is stitched back up and there's only one hole. And then type four is sort of this other category, which includes pricking or cauterizing. But that's important to recognize because oftentimes with media representation, they seem to um, highlight type three, the most severe form. And in other parts of the world, type one or type two might be happening. And type three is actually, from the research we know, only accounts for about like 10% of FGC globally. So I think there, there's a lot of reasons around like why this has been so silenced. But unfortunately, media has been helpful in breaking the silence, but also in helping to perpetuate some of these myths too. And what is the reason? Can you just give us an understanding of the reasoning behind why this happens? Yeah, um, it's a great question. There, there are many different reasons for why female genital cutting happens. And I think there are many similarities between communities. And then there are so some of the reasons include this idea that it is a tradition or mm-hmm. it's a cultural idea or it's a religious requirement. Um, there are many ideas around gender roles and the idea that women are not supposed to be sexual. Coincidentally, I've also heard the other where by doing this, you might actually increase women's sexuality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's just important to note too. Um, there are reasons given around marriageability, this idea that a woman can't be married off until she has this done. And I'm just listing a bunch of reasons yeah. because there are many different reasons for why this is performed amongst many different communities. And sometimes one reason is emphasized in one community more than another. But I think the, the basic idea is that this is a social norm. This is something that has been justified in all these different ways in within communities to a point that it's a custom. It's something that it's just like, it has to be done. And if it's not, then there can be these negative sanctions um, right. in a community for not having it done. So that it, the, the idea that it's just a, you know, rooted social norm in the community is the really the main focus. But then you dig into it more and you do start to learn about how it can impact women's sexuality negatively, physically. But, but again, there are so many other ways people justify that, but they, you know, I've heard communities where they'll say, oh, no, 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 it's nothing about controlling women's sexuality. It's actually a religious requirement and it's in our religious text. Um, it, that actually is something that's happening in the community I grew up in, but it's, it's a social norm. It's right. an, unfortunately it's a harmful so, social norm. So you use this term pluralistic ignorance a lot and it's you know it's a great term because I think it really encompasses what we're talking about and the work that you do. Can you explain what pluralistic ignorance means? Yeah. So pluralistic ignorance is a social psychology term and the idea behind it is that everybody is continuing something because they believe everybody else is doing it. But really in secret it could be that no one wants to continue it and i think that's really important and how i first came to learn about this idea was that seo uh the organization again i helped co-found one of the first things we did when we came together was launch this study 
to understand how prevalent FGC was within the the Dowdy Bora community, which is the community I grew up in. And we there, there were just no large-scale studies out there about this. And so we thought that we would we would do our own study. And we sort of used my, my thesis as a, a template, and then we connected with some NGOs to help create it. And we had over 400 women who took part in this study. Um, Bora, they, they all were raised in this Bora community, regardless of how they identified as an adult. And we found out that 80% had been cut and that was something that we were not shocked about we thought it was pretty prevalent in, in the community in terms of how widespread it was that women were cut um and i should just mention that another stereotype is this idea that fgc only happens in uneducated communities and the community i grew up in is very highly educated and the women are known to be highly educated and going to school for degrees mm-hmm. and everything and i think it's important to recognize that this is an issue that's so ingrained in communities. And again, why I say it's a social norm that education might not necessarily be a factor right. in terms of as it done. Mm-hmm. Um, but then going back to the study, we found out 80% had undergone it. Another important stat was that 81% said they didn't want it to continue. And that was really surprising to us because then it made us wonder, well, if people don't want it to continue, then why does it? And that relates back to this idea of pluralistic ignorance. It was that people weren't talking about it. People were, you know, that's part of the reason this this form of gender-based violence has started or continued generation after generation because it's been, you've been taught to be silent about it. And when I think about my own experiences, that was, I grew up with this idea. It was a private woman's issue. You're not supposed to speak about it publicly. And it was a learned behavior. And a lot of gender-based violence, um, is learned behavior. Domestic violence is learned behavior. We know studies and research from children who witness it when they're kids, oftentimes, unfortunately, grow up to either have tumultuous relationships in themselves and become victims or to be abusers. And so this was another form of learned behavior. And that that pluralistic ignorance was leading to people continuing it generation after generation. Right. That makes so much sense. And I think that it is crazy to think about the fact that this is such a prevalent issue yet your research found that what was it 81 percent yeah 81 percent of people don't want it to continue and so figuring out why that is makes a lot of sense in in getting to the bottom of how to actually end this but the next thing that i want to talk about with you because this is kind of another foundation of your organization and it's also a foundation of the work that i do which is breaking the taboo and sharing stories and creating community um what like i want to hear your perspective on the importance of this in regards to the work that you do because i know that i mean i know it's so important in terms of so many different problems in the world but especially with these silenced issues having women share stories and creating a community that talks about these things are so important yeah i couldn't agree with you more Uh, it's i think we have to take things that have been considered private into the public sphere to Mm -hmm. make them recognize that these are community public issues And I often think about domestic violence more so because I also really started my professional career in domestic violence too. And that was something that um, in the US, 
you know, the domestic violence movement really started in the 1970s uh, with the second wave of feminism that happened here. But it wasn't really until 1994 that I think was it that marital marital rape was outlawed. Mm-hmm. And previous to that, it was considered somewhat acceptable for what happened between a man and a wife and their marriage and abuse was 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 okay, you know. And I think that I, I mentioned that because you know, if you look at it at that social norm perspective, that was something that for a long time was just not spoken about. And in many cases, still domestic violence in some communities are not spoken about, but we've progressed a lot since even 30 years ago. Um, And once it was starting to be a public discussion and you know we recently had the me too movement where that has shed a lot more light light on gender-based violence and sexual harassment um i think that's when we start to see social change happen when you build that critical mass of voices there was research in science magazine an article that i read a few years ago and it showed that once you get 25 percent of a population to talk about something then that can be that's a critical mass you need to be able to create social norm change within that's the community. That's so interesting. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. So I think any type of storytelling breaking the silence on so many topics including FGC is vital because we are trying to create social norm change. We're trying to um change, you know, centuries worth of ingrained practices and harmful forms of gender-based violence and we can't do that if you don't even recognize the problem so breaking that science is so crucial and that first step towards mm-hmm. change mm-hmm. you worked with the women's bar association to pass state legislation in massachusetts that would ban fgc and create education and outreach programs for survivors this is absolutely incredible I want to ask how you did this, but I know that that would be like a separate podcast conversation in and of itself, (laughs) but let's talk a little bit about this because this is really amazing. Yeah, thank you. It Mm -hmm. was a long time coming and it actually just passed this, this August. Oh, (laughs) congratulations. (laughs) I didn't even realize it was that recent. Okay. That's amazing. Um, So it was something that has been seven years in the works, and I uh, have been involved in trying to get legislation passed for five years, in part five years because I moved to Massachusetts five years ago. But it, the women, Massachusetts Women's Bar Association, seven years ago, they really wanted to look into creating legislation, and Deborah Benson, who was the, the lead of the this kind of work and this initiative, she had heard about a resolution being passed by the UN and then recognized that we had no law in Massachusetts. And so she sort of got the ball rolling. And then when I came in five years ago, I was working with this group, but also we were really trying to build a lot of community support to show that there was uh, support behind passing this legislation. And we all wanted to make sure this was a very holistic piece of legislation, meaning that not only 
criminalized FGC, which I think it is important as a prevention tool and to help highlight that this is not acceptable. But I think what is even more important is to ensure that you have community education and outreach, and then you have civil remedies for survivors who might need that. And so we wanted this bill to be very holistic because there, there's a lot of other research that out there that shows that law in itself won't stop something necessarily, but like making sure that you couple it with that community education outreach can be very effective. And we, there were, there were former iterations of this law that just passed. Um, we always started with a very holistic bill and then sometimes I got gutted down, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that, that tends to happen. And I think sometimes people don't realize how many attempts it can take before a law passes as mm-hmm. well. But we did that. We built a lot of community support. We uh, one, one of the things I did two years ago, I think now, was start a change.org petition to really help build uh, wide-scale public support, and it ended up getting over 400,000 signatures as well. So we really did, and I, I really tried to gather survivor voices, uh, and I was able to get anybody who's, I think, a survivor of any form of gender-based violence, it's really hard to share your story. So we wanted to be able to, if anybody wanted to be able to support this, share their story anonymously or with their name, whatever they were comfortable with. So I was able to help them find a way to have a voice and talk about their support for this as well. Mm-hmm. But it was really a team effort. We needed so many different sectors from health to um, legal to, you know, community organizations to, to be able to obviously the amazing legislators that worked on this bill and the bill co-sponsors to be able to work together to bring this about. And we had, a, we had a few events at the Massachusetts State House to raise awareness on this issue and just to educate legislators, but it was seven years. Um, and it feels amazing to know it's been signed into law <laughs> just recently as well. But it was, it's a first step. And you want to do this, I assume, in so many other states as well, right? Yeah, well, right now, Massachusetts is now the 39th state to have a law. Oh, I didn't realize. Okay. Oh, we talked about this. Now I remember. Okay, I remember. Yeah, so there was, I think it was two or three years ago that we only had about 19 states that had a law. And this totally could be another podcast, but there's a lot of drama around the federal legislation Mm -hmm. and it was ruled unconstitutional. And once that happened, then many states started working towards passing laws, but not all states have a comprehensive law like Massachusetts does. There's very few states that have that good of a law. Uh, And so there is something that it would be amazing to work with other states to strengthen their laws. And right. I know there are a few organizations that are doing that. And I'm looking at Connecticut now and potentially seeing how we can help support Connecticut. Connecticut does not have a law yet. Wow. But I, I would love to work with the 11 other states definitely to get a law in the books, yeah. but then also make sure that all the states have very comprehensive laws. This is so interesting. The next thing I want to talk about is you work a lot with survivors in your organization that's part of you know a lot of the work that you do i want to ask what is one of the biggest challenges that you kind of see they are having to overcome 
Oh, that's a great question. I think it's so personal to the yeah to the person as well. I think about I think reaching out is a huge first step, mm-hmm. and being able to just whether it's just coming out to say thank you for sharing your story or thank you for being there or recognizing maybe you need support. Um, it's so individualist individual in terms of the person Uh, I think and I think recognizing that is important as well and not and also when you're working in communities recognizing that people have different experiences in terms of how they feel physically emotionally sexually about it I I work with women who say that they don't feel like they've had any negative consequences and then I've worked with women who have very traumatized by this. And right. I think it's important to, you know, understand all of those experiences are, are their truths mm-hmm. and um, possible. And, and it has to do with a, a long range of different things in terms of, you know, the severity of the cut, how old were they? Um, some people who feel like they have no, no personal trauma have blacked out the, the actual yeah. experience, which is a way to for children to cope with trauma, um, and I think it's just not to make not to judge a survivor's story because I often hear, unfortunately, sometimes I hear from the women who don't have as a traumatic story, or in their view, they don't have as a traumatic story that they don't have any right to actually complain or share, and I always find that interesting because. I think what the bottom line is that this is something that's happening to children um, who are too young to consent and it's, you know, it's happening to their genitalia and it doesn't matter what the, what the, what they grow up, if they have no physical consequences or not. But the fact that it's happening to young girls or to, you know, not old enough to consent, that's a human rights violation there. That's a form yeah. of gender based violence, you know, and I often think about that and like compare it to um, um, sexual assault and rape. And I feel like for so long, there was a misconception that rape was only one form where it was this violent form of rape that happened, you know, by strangers. And that's not necessarily true. And we're doing a lot of education outreach around, you know, uh, sexual assault rape that happens on college campuses and different um, ways that it could happen as well. And I think, and we don't want to disregard any of those stories either. So I feel like it's the same thing here. We don't want to disregard anybody's experience here. Another thing I'm curious about is the role that men play in this practice. Yeah. And also in helping to overcome this. Yeah. um, With Sayo and in my own personal view, I feel like it's important that we do recognize men need to be involved in the conversation and partly because you, many communities say this is a private women's issue, but I think recognizing that this is a communal issue, and even if it is something that women are continuing it on women, men have potential to be able to prevent future girls from undergoing it in their community. In some communities, it's emphasized more that this is being done for men and their sexual pleasure. In other communities, that might not be the reason it's emphasized, but I think in all communities, being able to have this conversation and, you know, making it a community issue is important in terms of helping to prevent it. And at SEO, we have we have men 
who have written stories about learning that when their mothers underwent it or, you know, learning that their sisters underwent it. And, or I remember one story where a father who said that he had no say in, you know, the practice when his daughter underwent it later on. Now his daughter wrote her story and he read the story on our blog and then just wrote this beautifully um, touching letter about just apologizing that he wasn't there to stop it, you know, and not recognizing that she had gone through this pain as well. And I think that we can ha- men can be allies to really help ensure that this doesn't continue onto the next generation. So it's really important to have men involved, which is why we we have them in our programs as well. And we would like to do a lot more work too. They're, they're important as allies as mm-hmm. well. I think that I completely agree. And I think involving men is really important because even though it's a women's issue, it can't, you can't do what, what you want without the help of men because they're the other half. So, you know, with anything, with my work, your work, it's really important that we educate men and we involve them in order to really accomplish our goals. Um, if anyone wants to get involved in your organization or reach out to you, how can they do so? Definitely check out our website, sayo.com, or you can find us at sayo.org also, but S-A-H-I-Y-O.org.com. And, you know, you can email us at info at sayo.com, and you can volunteer, you can donate. Getting involved, just learning about this issue, do a Google search, read about it. And if you're interested as well, there is a U.S. and FGMC network, which you can find the website online as well, and that lists resources and information and organizations all across the country that are working on this issue amazing and last but not least are there any resources you have to recommend definitely check out the us and fgmc network because they list say you'll list a lot of resources on our website so feel free to check our ours out too but the us and fgmc network does as well so i would recommend both of those resources wonderful thank you again for coming on the podcast and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. For everyone listening, if you have any questions for me, you can send an email to info at thevhive.com and follow us on Instagram at thevhive. Check out our website, www.thevhive.com. This podcast is for education purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare professional services, including the giving of medical advice. During the episodes, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should seek the assistance of their healthcare provider for any concerns or questions they have.